You're listening to the Bible Brush Up Podcast, a podcast that's currently going through a reading plan covering the prophets of the Old Testament, and we are right now in the mix of several minor prophets, probably too many for us to cover in a timely manner, um, but I do want to focus on a couple of them today that are connected, and I'm going to start with the prophet Jonah. Jonah is unique in several ways. First and foremost, his book is more of a narrative in its composition than the prophetic genre that we see in writings like Isaiah and Jeremiah. In those prophetic works, we get a lot of utterances of God and we get a lot of direct um, a lot of direct messaging from God to the people that the prophets were communicating to. And that style, that genre seems to be absent here in the book of Jonah. And Jonah reads more like a narrative, like a story. And so we're getting a story, a glimpse of the life of the prophet, but we're not necessarily getting all of the content of the message that the prophet was supposed to deliver. Now, those that have read through this book realize that right away uh, there's another uniqueness in who Jonah is sent to. We've looked at several prophets that were sent to the southern kingdom. That's where the majority of the prophets spend their time, with the southern kingdom, Judah. And so most prophetic works are focused on God's people in Jerusalem and in Judah. Uh, There are a handful of prophets, and really less than a handful, it's just two or three prophets that were sent to the northern kingdom. And those are very unique in a sense. But here we have a prophet that's not sent to the southern kingdom, nor is he sent to the northern kingdom. But instead, he is sent to Assyria. Assyria is the very enemy of God's people. These are the people we've been talking about as we've read through um, books like Isaiah. And the Assyrian threat has been their ever-present before the people of God in the northern and southern kingdom and has become a a vicious villain in this story, in this narrative. And the people of Assyria are known for being extremely violent and um, their tactics in warfare are um, so brutal that it's no wonder that Jonah, when he gets the call to go and preach for the Assyrians to repent and turn to God, it's no wonder that he takes off in the other direction and he jumps on a boat and he tries to get away from that mission field that he's been called to. And as he runs, of course, uh, God brings the storm and the storm results in the crew throwing Jonah overboard and um, this giant fish or sea monster Um, Whatever it is, we don't know, you know, we've grown up with the language of a whale, and um, there have been many that have said, well, whales can't swallow people, Um, and perhaps that's true. Maybe it wasn't a whale, maybe it was a giant fish of some kind, maybe it was a great white shark, maybe it was uh, a sea monster that no longer is present in our oceans. Um, It could be a, a number of things. In fact, in the book of Jonah, it says that God had prepared the fish. And so this could be a supernatural preparing where this is something outside of the ordinary, or it could have been a preparing in such a way that it modified a particular type of monster, sea monster, or whale. For instance, a sperm whale is one of the only whales that could potentially swallow a person. 
Um, and so perhaps God modified it so that the, um, the human inside could live for three days. Um, but regardless, we don't need to try to explain away all of that too much because this is a work of God, is an act of God. And if God wants to keep someone alive inside the belly of a fish, if he wants to make a fish that can't swallow a human swallow a human, um, then it certainly can be done. If he can create everything out of nothing and speak a word and make everything that exists currently exist with no material to work from, then he certainly can accomplish something as small as Jonah being swallowed by this big fish or sea creature. But the sea creature acts as a saving mechanism in Jonah. Oftentimes we view it as the judgment against Jonah. The storm is the judgment against Jonah. And him being thrown overboard out into the ocean in the waves as he's sinking down in um, chapter Two, Jonah is describing that he is sinking down and he is going down to Sheol and he has the seaweed wrapping around his head and uh, it's basically death. He's describing death. He's about to die and then God remembers him and sends salvation. In fact, he finishes at verse 9 by saying salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the fish coming and swooping him up and preserving his life. And uh, then when he gets spit back on the ground, on dry ground, he goes and he fulfills his ministry to Assyria. Now, obviously, he is not happy about this. He's very reluctant to go and to preach repentance. And even after he preaches repentance, he is sort of hoping they won't turn, which is never the right attitude to have. If God is calling uh, someone to go and to preach repentance so that they might turn and honor God, then uh, our mentality should be that we hope for that to occur. We hope for that um, to be favorably received. And Jonah sits on the mountain. He's watching down on the people, and he's just waiting, hoping that God will just pour down fire and brimstone and burn them up. Um, but let's stop there for a minute and go back and ask a couple of questions. First of all, why did God use the fish? Why did God use a big fish to save Jonah, why didn't he use some other mechanism? Why didn't he just have the, the people drop Jonah off at the nearest port and then for him to be picked up by a, a group of traders and then them to march him over? To, and then, you know, God could do it a million different ways, but he chooses to use big fish. So why does he choose to use a big fish? Well, I think the answer to that falls into um, the exploration of the Assyrians' gods. As we explore their gods and we look at who they worshipped, one of the primary gods that the Ninevites, Nineveh, by the way, is the capital of Assyria. So uh, if I refer to the Ninevites or the Assyrians, the same group of people, uh, the Ninevites are the people of the city of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. So these Ninevites or Assyrians, they worship a god named Dagon, and Dagon is a fish god. He's half man, half fish. And so when Jonah gets spit up by the big fish, it it's sort of a creative way of God saying, hey, I'm the God of all fish. You don't need to be worshiping a fish God because I'm the God over the fish. I'm the, the Lord of all lords. I'm the God of all gods. I'm supreme to any of these gods that you have created with your imagination or with your hands. And uh, this is a common way that God 
responds to idolatry. This is how he responded in Egypt when uh, the 10 plagues were unleashed on the Egyptians. Most of those plagues correspond to one of the gods that they worshipped. When the sun is darkened, that's because they worshipped the sun god. When the Nile is turned to blood, it's because they worshipped the Nile god. They believed that it was a, a supernatural uh, blessing when the river flooded the banks and pro- provided nutrients for the crops, and they worshiped the river for that. And God is saying, no, I'm the God of the river. I'm the God of the sun. I'm the God of the fish. Don't worship any of those other things. I am the God. Uh, in Egypt, they worshiped Baal, the, the golden calf. That's what it was crafted after, is Baal of Egypt. And so God causes livestock to die. He's saying, don't worship the livestock. I'm the God of the livestock. Later on, we're going to get to the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, you're going to have someone named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's name, Nebuchadnezzar, is named after the God of wisdom. And what does God do to Nebuchadnezzar? who's named after the God of wisdom. Well, he makes him go mad. He makes him go crazy. It's the opposite of wisdom. God says, hey, you're going to worship a made-up God of wisdom. I'm going to show you that I am sovereign over all wisdom and knowledge. And so if I want to take wisdom from you, I will. If I want to give wisdom to someone like I did Solomon, I will. And so Jonah is the same thing. Jonah is called to go and to preach repentance to a people that worship a fish god and God is using the big fish to reveal that he is sovereign over even the creatures of the sea. And so Jonah goes, and he preaches this message of repentance. They repent, they turn, and this is huge for a group of people like the Assyrians. It's the last group of people you think would ever respond to a message from someone like Jonah, from a group of people that they are going to destroy later on. They're going to attack and destroy And so people are very reluctant to respond to their prey um, when they come and they give an authoritative message. But Jonah sits up there, and we have this whole final episode of uh, the gourd. And as Jonah sits and waits, waiting to see what will happen, he has a gourd grow over him, and it gives him some shade, and then the gourd dies. And at the end, Jonah's kind of throwing a hissy fit. And it just reveals Jonah's heart. Jonah is not in this. His heart is not in this mission. And so God teaches Jonah something about himself. And he's basically, it's kind of comedic. We probably don't laugh when we read this, but um, the Jewish approach to this passage, if you had read this as an ancient Jew, uh, you would have seen some humor in the way that this story ends because God is saying, hey, don't, why do you care about the plant? I just saved a bunch of people in Nineveh from destruction and you're crying about a plant dying and here's a bunch of people that would have died had I brought my wrath upon them and you're mad about them living and you're mad about the plant dying. You would have been happier if the plant lived and the people died. And then he says this last little bit, which is also comedic in and of itself. It says in verse 11 of Jonah chapter 4, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? 
Uh, it's that final phrase there that is supposed to be somewhat humorous, uh, even though we probably don't pick up on that. Um, but he's saying, hey, if you don't care about the 120,000 people, shouldn't you at least care about the cows? Uh, because if he had rained fire and brimstone down like Jonah had desired, then it would have killed all the plants that he was mourning over that were providing shade. Uh, it would have destroyed the people, but it would have destroyed the animals, the cows, and all that. And so God draws his attention to that. It's like, hey, you heartless prophet, couldn't you at least have sympathy over the cows of Nineveh? Okay, and so that concludes Jonah. And uh, I'd like to jump ahead, though, because 100 years after this, roughly, there's one more prophet that gets sent back to Assyria. And this prophet is Nahum. Nahum and Jonah both go to the people of Assyria. And when Nahum gets there, he does not find a group of people that are repentant. He does not find a group of people that are worshiping Yahweh, uh, which reminds us that just because we have one generation of people that repent and worship Yahweh and believe in God and serve him does not mean that the following generations are going to do so. Uh, in fact, it's quite common for them to fall away from worshiping Yahweh and worshiping in truth. They often buy into the lies of the culture and the society, and, and they often make different decisions that they believe will prosper them. Uh, just like in Jeremiah, we read about people who forsook Yahweh because they thought that worshiping Yahweh was actually leading to their destruction. They thought that worshiping other gods would make them more prosperous. That's why they created a golden calf, because they thought that the worship of those gods, the same gods that Egypt was worshiping, would make them more prosperous. Well, that's what's happened in Assyria. They've turned back to their old gods, the same old idolatry, and they've left whatever repentant state they had been in under the preaching of Jonah, and now they're back to a ruthless, heartless people that are causing much devastation. But Nahum comes and preaches that they're going to get what they deserve. And so Jonah would have loved this message. Jonah probably wishes he could have been Nahum instead of Jonah, because um, Nahum reminds the Assyrians that God's in control. It's not their own power that has brought them this success. God has used them as an act of judgment against the northern kingdom, but God will use someone else as judgment against the Assyrians, and that's what we see with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to conquer the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are going to diminish into nothing. And so we've got two different prophets with two different messages going to the Assyrians. But all of this isn't just for the sake of the Assyrians. It's also there for the benefit of the remaining people in the land, the Israelites or the, the people of Judah. Because as they hear these messages, they're reminded that God is in control of all things, that God is going to judge and he's going to bring about powers to um, to bring about that judgment uh, in warfare and in captivity and exile. And all of this ties back to the covenant, the covenant agreement that they had. If they would honor God, then he would protect them. And he would be their Lord, and he would hold off these threats. And he's proven that he can. If he wants to take down a, a super country like the Assyrians, then he can. And if he wants to raise up a new power to bring about judgment on the previous 
superpower, then he can do that too, as he does with the Babylonians as they come in and take over Assyria. So God can do what he wants, and if people would just trust him and lean on him, then all would go well. And so those are just a couple of things we can pick up from our comparison of Jonah and Nahum, and we'll uh, pick it up next time here on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.